Well, today is the third and final week in the series that we've been in called Game Changers. And uh, as a sister church of Life Church, it's been awesome to be able to hear from Dave Ramsey and last week his daughter, Rachel Cruz. As I've shared in 2009, Dave spoke at a church I was on staff at in the Chicago area, and his talk completely changed our attitude and our approach towards how we lived and how we handled our finances. We downsized significantly. We uh, eliminated tens of thousands of dollars in debt. We began to live with financial margin in our life and breathing room, which removed nearly all financial stress. Like some of you hear that, like, is that possible? Like, that'd be so awesome. Uh, And we will see, as we've seen, as we'll see today, it is possible. And as we'll see today, there can be great joy in this. Now, you may be unaware But in the midst of the global pandemic of 2020, there was a historic shift in the separation of wealth. I know some of you feel like you're being separated from your wealth these days. Okay, in 2022, the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world have more resources and assets than the bottom uh, bottom 50% combined. So how many of you would like to be in that top 1%? Like I would like, like just if I, if I could be that rich, oh man, what I would do if I were rich. But as I have often said, and others have, the problem is rich is a moving target. Uh, some of you in this room, and you'll have to admit, you're, you're over the age of 40. How many of you over the age of 40 remember your first paying job? Okay, right. So, so I'm curious, okay, do you remember how much you made in your first paying job? Shout it out. Okay, 315, what'd you say? Okay, one here, you have us beat, 45 cents an hour. <laughs> you have me beat, I want to change my whole illustration. Okay, my, my first hourly job, uh, I was 16 years old, I was a fry cook at McDonald's at the corner of Harry and Hillside here in Wichita, making a whopping three and a quarter an hour, which today will get you a large coffee at Starbucks. I worked hard. I got those first paychecks and I thought, this is awesome. And then I took a step up and I went to work for Grandy's on Harry. Some of you have no clue what Grandy's is or was, but like their chicken, their chicken fried steak, best. And I started making four and a quarter an hour. Plus I was an 80s kid, which meant I mowed yards. I shoveled snow back when it used to snow in Wichita. I saved up enough to buy a 1966 Mustang fixed it up a bit, but I thought if only I could make a bit more, I'd be rich. Then I went in the Navy after high school. I got paid more. I had no debt. I had no credit cards. I was out to sea at one point for three and a half months straight without seeing land. So basically, I got my paychecks. I would just stick them in a drawer. By the time I got back to the States, I had a bunch of uncashed paychecks. I was able to pay cash for a Nissan 2. 100 SX. I felt rich, but then I met this really good-looking green-eyed blonde named Shauna. I knew she was the one, and on Wednesday, March 23rd, 1988, I confidently walked into the Zales in Horton Plaza Mall in San Diego. I said, I've met the perfect woman. I need the biggest engagement ring I can afford. And they had me fill out a paper to figure out what I could afford after using this ancient device called a calculator. They showed me the largest ring that I could afford, and then I had them bring me a magnifying glass. I'm like, is there a diamond in there? Uh, But I got it at about 21% interest. I think I just paid it off last year. In fact, 
my wife and I, we've often laughed about how our college and career group after church, like they would go after a gathering or after church, church and we, we would want to go with them because we loved them. There's like 80 of them. But we secretly hated it when they would choose Fuddruckers. For those of you who don't know what Fuddruckers is, think like Red Robin, okay? And they'd all be ordering whatever they wanted off the menu. And then we'd always be like last. We'd get like a large fry and two waters and lather it with ketchup. Or if they fortunately would pick Del Taco, we would still stand there like, do we have the money to pay the extra 30 cents for the sour cream? And just like, man, how great it'll be, how rich we'll be when we don't have to do that anymore. And then you fast forward through college, and I thought, if I could just make $25,000 a year, I'd be rich. And the day came, I was hired as a coordinator for a group home for teenage girls. I was making $25,000, and so shockingly, I did not feel rich. I thought, man, if I could just make 40000 a year, we'd be rich. And then a few years later, I accepted a position, and they paid me $40,000, and Shauna was able to stay home with our young children, and I was supporting our family of six. And so shockingly, I did not feel rich, and we've all experienced this, that the bar of wealth and what rich is, it just keeps moving. And like Rachel said last week, she asked the question, how much do you need to be happy? And if the answer is just a little bit more, then you understand how rich is a moving target. So it makes sense that Jesus would caution us about this discontentment and drive to keep trying to hit this moving target, especially with the next generation watching us and our decisions affecting them. So, of course, Jesus would say, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And honestly, we know this. Jesus' warning is that we have to be intentional. We have to be on our guard. You have to be mindful that you don't get sucked into the lie of this world. And the lie of this world is that what you do not have, if you could obtain it, then you would be happy and fulfilled. It's a lie. Another time, Jesus, he tells a made-up story. It's a parable to make a point. Uh, And he said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what am I going to do? I've got no place to store my crops. And it never occurred to him to consider, I have more than I need. Who, who could use my help? This could be fun. How could I be generous? Where could I make a difference? And said, instead, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down. I'm going to go through the expense of tearing down my little piddly two small barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus, my extra, my more than I will ever need grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And honestly, we understand this guy. I think that'd be great. But God said to him, you, you fool. You equated money with time. And that is a false equivalency. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for who? Yourself. Jesus says the object lesson is this. This is how how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Now, this is important. God was not mad at the rich guy. In fact, God was the one who enabled him to be rich. The guy was a farmer. Basically, all a farmer needs to be rich is good rain, sunshine, and fertile soil. So, in the end, who made this guy rich? God did. 
So God wasn't mad that he was rich. The problem was that the guy assumed it was all for his consumption. And as a result, he wasn't rich towards God, which means that he wasn't generous towards the things and specifically the people who matter to God. So the good news and the bad news is today, you're rich. Now you go, now internally you go, no, no, I'm not. Like I'm not, I, we already established I'm not in the top 1%, so I'm not rich. Yet right now, 3 billion people on the planet live on $2 a day. Two months ago, Shauna and I were in Poland and Ukraine. The average gross monthly salary in Poland, monthly salary, $1,052 or $16,600 a year. In Ukraine, prior to the war, the average monthly salary is $463 a month or $6,000 a year. That's the average salary. And if you compare the problems that you deal with to the problems that they deal with, especially right now in 2022, are you rich? Yes. And think about our problems compared about to the majority world. We, we have these boxes in our kitchens. They call them the refrigerators, and they keep food from spoiling. Did you know that 75% of the world's population, 5.92 billion people today, do not have a refrigerator? You don't have to go out and kill tonight's dinner every day. This box allows you to store it and to keep it from spoiling, and you open it up, and a light comes on and lights it all up, and you look, and there's stuff in it, and what do you say? We've got nothing to eat. Rich people problems. Or you order something from Amazon. It's literally coming from across the country, and God forbid it takes three days instead of two, or you're frustrated. And when it arrives, you don't even remember what you ordered. It's like Christmas every day. What did you, my, my wife, all the time, what did you order? I don't know, let's find out. And we get in there. Rich people problems. Or you've got this little device in your pocket or your purse. It, it has more power and computing power than the mainframe computers of the 80s. And you have instant access to everything. And you pull up Netflix and that little spinny circle shows up and it's buffering and you're mad. Stupid phone, stupid computer, just stupid prime. It's coming from outer space to your device. You have rich people problems. So I want to say this out loud. This will make some of you uncomfortable. You didn't grow up Baptist, but we're going to say something out loud. I just want you to say, I'm rich. Okay, we're going to do it again. I'm rich. All right. Why is it uncomfortable to say that? King Solomon king of Israel when the nation reached its peak of greatness in the world, he wrote this, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, which is their work, this is a gift of God. In other words, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. In fact, when you're able to take the good with the bad and accept your lot and be happy in your work, Solomon says, this is a gift from God. But there's something about us that, especially for a Christian, we're almost uncomfortable acknowledging that we've been blessed in this way. But you'd never be apologetic that God's blessed your marriage. You'd never be apologetic if God has blessed you with good health. But yet, when it comes to money, we get a little weird. It's like, if I'm a Christian, I don't think I should feel happier about having money and stuff. The good news is you're rich. The bad news is you're rich. Why? Why is that bad news? Because 
the more you have, the harder it is to live by faith. Because you tend to trust in what's, trust what's in your hands rather than in the God that put it there in the first place. This puts us at a spiritual disadvantage over people who have less. I have seen this firsthand, especially in my time in Haiti and Africa and the Philippines. I thought these people, they've got like one-tenth or less of what I have. And yet the vibrancy of their faith and their joy and their love for neighbor, I think they're the rich ones. Many of you, you've heard the story of the rich young ruler. So one day, a man runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew the heart of everyone, so his response to this man is very in intentional. Jesus says, you, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, commit adultery, not steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept, the young man said, probably a firstborn child. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, oh, come follow me. Come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he left. Sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. Then Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he sees the look on their face, on their faces. So he repeats himself. He even adds hyperbole. He goes, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would he repeat himself? Because they didn't believe him. Because in their culture, much like ours, we equate financial wealth in this life with God's blessing. And we assume that wealth equals God's favor. So, of course, if they have God's favor in this life, they'll have God's favor in the next life. But Jesus states that is a false equivalency. It's a lie. Mark tells us that when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They said, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Because Jesus' invitation to this guy is the same invitation that he makes to you and to me follow me. And Jesus knew that this guy had extra weight, more so than most. And he knew that this guy's stuff would be an anchor and would hold him back. And for us who are Americans in this room or joining us online, while we not, might not be in the top 1% like apparently this guy was, we are rich. And it can be that very thing that holds us back from all that God wants for us. And we have no idea what we're missing out on. I mean, Imagine what this guy missed out on. God in a bod has invited him to come and follow him. And do you know what his name is? Neither do I. Because he chose his stuff over the opportunity of a lifetime. And then sometime after that, he died. And all that stuff that led him to turn down the opportunity of a lifetime. All that stuff he held so tightly to, it was all taken from him. Why? Because he died. And he could take none of it with him. And it was a total loss. What an opportunity he missed. And for what? See, wealth is not the problem. The problem is when the things you possess, possess you. 
So in our remaining few minutes, I just want to talk about how we can avoid the mistake of the farmer and avoid missing out on something huge like the rich young man did by learning how we can be rich towards God because I don't want to miss out and you don't either. I don't want to lose out and neither do you. And it all comes down to a mindset. And one of the first things we have to change our mind about is we have got to think like stewards, not owners. David was a warrior poet. He writes in Psalms 24.1, he writes, The earth is whose? The Lord's. And everything in it. The world and all who live in it. It all belongs to God. It's His. It's all His. We've got to get that in our mind. That glowing piece of plastic that you watched a show on last night at your home. God's. What you chose to put on your body to wear to church today for Mother's Day, God's. What you drove to church in today, it belongs to God. Whatever you logged on to today to watch or listen, God's. Your bank account, your retirement account. And here's how you know if something belongs to God. Anything that you can't take with you when you die, God's. So, everything. And you had no control over where or when you were born or what happens to your soul for eternity once you die. That's God's call as well. So you belong to God whether you think you do or not, whether you like it or not. Everything in the world and all who live in it belongs to God. So do you know what that means? We are stewards, not owners. And if we don't embrace that mindset, we miss out and we lose out. There's a fascinating teaching in the Old Testament called Malachi. Some places in the U.S. they pronounce it Malachi. Okay, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It is Malachi. 400 years before Jesus was born. And so this is God using the prophet Malachi as a mouthpiece. And he says this. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now the tithe is something that actually predated uh, what's referred to as the law and the prophets. It just simply meant a tenth. And the law was simply this, that you're to set aside the first tenth of your crops or your income or your, or, or your livestock to help fund the work of the temple, to support and feed all those that serve in the temple. On this side of the cross, the storehouses, the local church, where you and others and the next generation can be spiritually fed and nurtured and where we get to use our cumulative resources to serve and help people outside of this community. I've got four boys, and when they were young, it just seemed like we had a birthday party every single week. Like, for those of you that like several kids, like, you know what I'm talking about. And my kids had no limit with what generosity should look like, right? But we did, like, when it came to birthday presents, because we were going to be the ones but purchasing these gifts, like many of you have. And then you give it to your children to take into the party, and even though it said, from Josh or from Jake on it, who really paid the price? Me and mom, like we did. And they were so generous. I mean, isn't it so easy to be generous with other people's money? Right? I, and that is part of God's point. Like when we were in Poland, Ukraine, you, many of you, and many outside of New Life entrusted us with thousands of dollars to help. How difficult do you think it was to be generous with the refugees and the church running the shelters and C4U and getting supplies 
into Ukraine to get food and resources to our handlers and translators to bless them, many of whom have no income right now because they're devoted to the war effort. How difficult do you think it was to simply hand my credit card to a pregnant mother of four who had lost everything, who's in a country she doesn't speak the language, whose husband's on the front line, and to take her and her 17-year-old niece from store to store so that they could get clothing and medicine and simple toys for her young children and to give her a moment of dignity and joy? Was that difficult? Are you kidding me? That was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. It, I, I must feel guilty saying it. It was fun. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I repeatedly told these people, like, all this resource has been entrusted to us by people back home and by God to bless them, to resource them, to help them in this time of need. And that is a snapshot of what God wants for all of us. The point of consistent and percentage giving is to renew our minds and transform our hearts from how the world would have us think, which is, it's all for me. That's what the world wants us to embrace, that I just need to build bigger barns. I need to accumulate more. I need to hit this target of rich, and I want to eat drink and be merry and screw everyone else. Maybe I'll give a little if there's a war or a little if there's a tornado. No, it's about renewing our mindset. This isn't mine. This belongs to God. And if I can embrace that mindset, how much easier is it going to be for me to live open-handed? It is so much easier. And peace, oh my gosh, how much peace do you have when you feel like you don't have to have a death grip over everything that you are eventually going to have to leave behind anyway? So much peace. You and I were created to be a conduit of God's blessing and resource, not a collector of things. It's supposed to come to you. You give some and you keep some. And you choose to let it flow through you. Sean and I started this adventure of giving 32 years ago, and I was not a fan. I was reluctant. And for us, we chose to take the Old Testament approach of giving 10% of our income. Again, I wasn't a fan. And it wasn't because I thought, like some, that somehow church is a scam or church just always wants my money. The bottom line was I was greedy. I didn't have a lot growing up, but like most, I thought if only I had fill in the blank, I'd be happy. And I'm embarrassed to admit, even as I'm preparing to enter full-time ministry all those years ago, I put lipstick on my greed by saying things like, I'm giving my life to full-time ministry. That's so much more than 10%. God doesn't need this money, right? I'm giving him all of me, and I'm just embarrassed. It just sounds so childish. The bottom line, I was just making up excuses because I was greedy. And I reluctantly submitted to the heart of my wife who felt strongly about giving. And I finally just like, fine, God and Shauna, I give up. And I just started giving. And even though I started out with a bad attitude, over time, my mind began to change. And then you fast forward to today, and Shauna and I, for us, there's this, this dynamic, just a, a a default sense of God's ownership. Like we get to enjoy a lot of this for ourselves, but this is not all for us. 
And we've discovered this pattern of joy in our life where of sharing, of giving consistently to our local church, to New Life, because we believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And in sharing with others who are in need, or just because we take a liking to some young couple like we had experienced when we were young, or a family, and we just want to bless them. It's so much fun. So to truly be rich towards the things that matter to God, we give some, we keep some. And so importantly, we begin to see ourselves as eternal kingdom investors. Many of you know this verse. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin and thieves destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves, or rather invest in, treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's just a fact that I and millions have experienced The more you invest in the things that matter to the heart of God, the more that your heart is going to beat for the things of God because your heart follows where your dollars go. It's just how it works. Every moment of every day you have choices. What to spend, what to invest. What God's given you, your time, your talent, your resources. Some, you know, you can spend some time binging your favorite show on Netflix when it's not buffering. Not not a sin. Nothing wrong with it, but, and maybe you've never thought about it this way, nothing is going to happen in heaven because of it. Take the same amount of time and invest it with a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe they don't know Jesus, or you take that time to get on your knees and pray for your kids, pray for your boss that doesn't know Christ. It's, that's an investment of time that will have an internal yield later. Spend or invest. Same amount of time, different outcome. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I have anyone knows how much you need sometimes to just sit down, turn the brain off, and unplug and rest. My point is about how we steward what God has given us, not just for ourselves, but for others, for their benefit. You could spend your money on the next toy or thing, or you could invest in paying a single parent's utility bill or their rent. Or give to a local mission partner. Or fund the work of New Life, where in two weeks people are going to go public with their faith and baptism. You can invest to help fund the work of New Life, where a month or a year someone that you know and care about is going to make a decision to give their life to Jesus. Or they're going to learn something they didn't know before, and it's going to be a game changer in their marriage, for their parenting, for eternity. And you will have played a role in making that happen by investing. And that kind of thinking makes all the difference. You know, when we were overseas, part of what we had to do, we had to exchange some money, and we changed American dollars for Polish zlotys. That's their currency. And towards the end of the trip, we had about 1,300 zlotys, which sounds like a lot. It's worth about 300 U.S. dollars. And you know what I did? I brought it all back home with me because I thought they looked cool and they were awesome. No, of course I didn't. Like, what... You know what I did? I gave that plus some to a young couple who'd only been married for two months, had to postpone their honeymoon because of the war. They lived in the tiniest apartment that I have ever been in. And this new bride stepped away from her salary job, and I already told you how much they make, as a school psychologist so that she could invest her full time into caring for traumatized Ukrainian children. So we gave it to them as a gift so that they could do something for themselves. In fact, I insisted that they could only spend it for themselves because these are kind of the crazy people. They would have spent it on refugees. 
And we were already channeling thousands of dollars towards refugee work. I wanted them to just have a night, a date night, and do something. So we gave it to them. But imagine if, because I thought this currency was cool, if I brought it back to the States, I would have been, got back and be like, well, this is cool. What do I do with it now? In the U.S., they would have been useless. Please don't miss this. It was something that was in my possession that was of value when I was temporarily at one location. But now that I'm back in my country of origin, it's worth nothing. How many of us are going to get to heaven and we're going to realize that we spent our, self, spent our lives obsessing over and collecting and hanging on to as much money and stuff and rides and square footage that we could get our hands on that was worth something temporarily here, but will be worth nothing there. We have to become stewardship thinkers beginning to consistently invest God's resources in what matters most to God. And if you do, you're going to wake up one day and you'll find yourself experiencing peace and joy. Because you'll find joy in giving and seeing what it does for others. King Solomon in the Proverbs, he writes, a generous person will themselves be what? Blessed. Blessed because they share their food with the poor. It's the person who just lives their life through the lens of what need could I meet? What ministry could I serve? Where could I be a blessing? And they will be blessed. You know everything Dave Ramsey and Rachel talked about, there's an eternal and spiritual why behind this entire series. Because anything that is given from the heart of wanting to be aligned with the agenda is heaven, of heaven is more than philanthropy. It's an act of ministry. This is much deeper than philanthropy. And I hope I've been clear. This is not something God is demanding of you. It's something God's inviting you to. Consider all the ways that we see people get used in the New Testament. Their stories are peppered throughout the New Testament because they were willing to say yes with their resources. In Matthew 21, to prepare for what will be termed the triumphal entry, Jesus tells his disciple, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone, meaning the person that owns them, says anything to you, say that the Lord, what? needs them, and he will send them right away. In what universe does God who made everything need anything from you? Did he need five loaves and two fish to perform a miracle to feed the multitude? No, he's God. Did he need the two small coins that the widow dropped into the offering in the temple? No. Did he need a tomb to be given by Joseph of Arimathea after Jesus' crucifixion? No. He could have just made one. He, I mean, he, he authored Mount Everest with a whisper. He doesn't need you. Did he really need a big and little donkey to enter Jerusalem to give his life for us? No. He could have entered Jerusalem any way he wanted. He could have flown in like Iron Man or Superman, whichever your preference. He could have blinked his eyes and just shown up in the upper room. And yet he's asking you, who he made to borrow something that he already owns, that he ultimately controls, to heal a heart, to save a life, to redeem a broken life, to redeem a broken world. And honestly, when I say that, it just seems utterly ridiculous and unnecessary. But what is he doing? He's inviting you and giving you the opportunity to have a part in the story. I mean, think about this. 
as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people laid down their cloaks on the road and they're laying palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There alongside the road was a guy who owns two donkeys. And he's watching this all take place. And he realizes, oh my gosh, I got to be a part of this story. And after the resurrection, can you imagine? I mean, he's probably people, that donkey right there, Jesus rode on him. He got to be a part of the story. Jesus rose, rode on that very donkey mind. You and I have a chance to be written into the story. So it's no accident that I time this message for a day where we celebrate one half of parenthood, Mother's Day, because you and I get a chance to set the course for the next generation, for your children and for your grandchildren. In fact, my grandparents, I, I tell people this all the time, on both my mother and father's side, they had such an impact on me in so many ways because they were some of the most generous people I knew. And, I, and their generosity had a direct connection to and was informed by their faith and their pursuit of Jesus. And as a child, as a teen, as a young adult, it had a huge impact on me and it inspired me as to the kind of man that I wanted to become. And then my awesome wife just added more fuel to the fire. And most recently, I got to experience the full fruit of this in the generation after me. When my oldest son and daughter-in-law, they decided to put their lives on hold to go do this work overseas, my son said he couldn't just sit by and do nothing. And in one of my texts, I told him how proud I, of, I was of him. He replied with this message, really, it's no supply, surprise, that's how you and mom raised me. Hmm. Imagine the joy... I felt as a parent reading that. I want that for you. About half this church is made up of the next generation. And they're watching you. And they're taking their cues from you. And your generosity towards others and towards the local church. And even though the people around you may never know, they never know God knows. In fact, Jesus said, your father, he sees what's done in secret. And He will reward you openly. When you give, God is writing you into someone's story. Every time you give. You may or may not see its impact in this life. And you are being written into the story of changing someone's life now or down the road. So as I wrap up, what's your next step? It depends. As I've said, I'm convinced that the local church is the hope of the world. So for some of you, your next step is to just pick a percentage, not a dollar amount. Pick a percentage of your income and say, from now on, God, the first percentage, I'm dedicating it to you and start giving to the local church. In the Old Testament, the percentage was 10%. That might be a great percentage for you. For some of you, you'd have to make little to no adjustment to your lifestyle. For others of you, you're like, I'd be homeless. But just... Whatever it is, just pick a percentage of your income and go, God, from now on, if you can use this to change someone else's life, I want to be a part of that story. So as soon as it comes in, you get this first percentage. And it doesn't have to be new life. If you're a guest here today and are part of an outward-focused local church, give there. If you don't have a church home, find one that you can believe in and begin to give a percentage. And I suggest setting up on reoccurring giving like my wife and I do. For us, it's just set up on the 1st and the 15th of every month. It's just hardwired into our budget. 
And, and to be clear, generosity isn't limited to just giving to the local church. For my wife and I, while it's our largest percentage area of giving, as I've said, it's not our only. As I shared, we, we love being generous in other ways, helping support organizations we believe in, individual families experiencing need, or again, we just feel prompted to share with someone. In fact, just last week, Sean was like, babe, I probably should talk to you about this, but there's this person that recently took a financial hit. I felt led that we should do something to help. And rather than get frustrated with her, I was just so proud of her. I'm so fortunate to have a wife with such a generous spirit. And I've seen how God has used her to make me a better man. And to be clear, the only reason I'm sharing so much personal information with you is not to brag, because I'm not that great. Sean is, but I... We're just not that special. We're no better than any one of you. Any good in my life is from God, period. Any good I do in my life, from God, period. I only share this personal information so that you know that I'm not suggesting anything for you that I don't do myself, so that you have, can have confidence. I actually believe in all this stuff. Or as I often say, that you know that I'm smoking what I'm selling. Okay. Uh, now there's another group of you. You're in the category of people that you've been giving to the local church for some time. But you've been given the same amount or the same percentage for a long time. And honestly, you don't even really think about it anymore because it's, it's comfortable. For you, your next step is to seriously consider increasing your giving by a few percentage points. Make a choice that forces you to make a few adjustments. Maybe a little less Starbucks, a little less meals out, a few small sacrifices that allow you to be a bigger part of the story. And again, if you don't trust me, you're not fully in on new life, fine. Never give a dime here, but give somewhere to another great church. Just don't miss out on the story God would write with your generosity. And lastly, for some of you, it's time for you to consider legacy giving. Legacy giving is, again, I don't teach or suggest anything I'm not willing to do myself. So legacy giving looks like this. My wife and I, we are in our 50s, and partly we were motivated because we went to Israel a few years ago, uh, and now recently a war zone, but we have a will, <laughs> And in our will, it's laid out that a percentage of our estate will go to the local church, to New Life. Because while we want our, ch our children to be blessed, and they'll be a little bit, they've got to divide whatever little between four of them, we also want future generations to be blessed by the ongoing work of this community that will far outlast us. Because again, as we say in our final core value, as I said earlier today, we are responsible for passing the baton to engage, to equip, to empower the next generation, to do all we can to set the next generation of the church up for success. And we want to help resource that. So it's up to you to figure out your next step and to take it. For you, for your children, for your grandchildren, for the next generation. Don't. He's inviting you and giving you the opportunity to have a part in the story. Don't miss out on what you could be a part of by your willingness to say yes to your next step. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I just acknowledge that money is one of the most difficult things in our life. And especially in a season where we're still feeling the impact of a pandemic and, and money and inflation and interest rates and all of the things that just seem to call out that we need to get a tighter grip and a tighter grip and accumulate more. And God, we need your help. We can't do this on our own. So I pray for everyone in this room that God, you will help them to have the courage to take whatever that next step is and to give the opportunity for you to show up in ways beyond what they could ask 
or imagine because they choose to trust you with the resources that you've entrusted to them. And I pray the same thing for myself and that you would increase my sense of generosity right along with all of us and everyone else. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.